0: Please, people of God, turn your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, our focus this morning will be on verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1. In the first 14 verses of his letter, Paul has been seeking to show his readers that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior and that spiritual fullness is can be found in him alone. This is Paul's burden as he writes, for there are certain false teachers in Colossae who are suggesting that Christ is not enough, that Christ is not enough for spiritual fullness. But to combat this teaching, Paul orients his readers to the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And he directs our focus this morning squarely upon Christ to see him in his glory and grace. Before we read God's word, let's pray to God. And I'll make use of the very words the Apostle Paul prayed from Colossians chapter 1. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with all power according to Christ's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy that we might give thanks to you for you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Father, you have delivered us from the domain of darkness, and you have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. So give us your Spirit, we pray. Illumine our hearts, illumine our minds, that we may see Christ and behold him and cling to him in true faith this morning. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, this is God's holy word. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps we come to a passage like this and we're tempted to think to ourselves, well, this is sort of old hat. After all, who among us doesn't already know that that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the eternal God. We confess it every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. Most of us know the words of Nicaea by heart. Jesus is God of God and light of light and very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of the same substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And who among us, hasn't at one time or another learned to memorize those Glorious words from the opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Yes, Jesus is the eternal Son of the eternal God. This is nothing new to us. But at the time when the Apostle Paul was writing this letter, the theology of verses 15 to 20 was groundbreaking. When Paul was writing to this little church in Colossae, the theology of these verses was, was life-altering. So much so that those who, who took hold of these things in faith, those who embraced the theology of these verses in faith, those who, who took hold of these things were never the same. Those who took hold of the preeminent Christ saw the world, and they saw their place in the world in a a whole new light. And that's my hope and prayer for us this morning, that, that we ourselves would take hold of these verses with a renewed sense of awe and wonder, in the exact same way that we would take hold of these things with awe and wonder, lest we ourselves would take for granted the wonder of all wonders, that that this Savior who, who reigns supreme over the cosmos and this supreme Savior in whom the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell, this Savior is our Savior. We belong to him and he belongs to us. And so we need to see him as he is in all his glory and grandeur. We need to devote ourselves to him. We need to recognize that we ourselves have been placed on this earth by him and for him so that in everything he might be supreme or preeminent. Here in verses 15 to 20, the apostle is, is expanding upon what he's just said in the previous section, the, the basis upon which Paul makes his request to God. Paul has been praying to God that we would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and knowledge, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, the base upon which Paul has has made these requests to God is the Lord Jesus himself. And so Paul places our focus upon the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus as the supreme savior is the source of Paul's confidence and zeal. And so it must be for us as well. If only we will truly behold this Christ as he really is, it will make all the difference. That's what Paul would have us to see. These verses then are really an invitation, a divine invitation to, to ask ourselves the, the searching question Is it possible? Is it possible that, that we have begun to develop a rather domesticated view of Christ so that, so that he's really not so significant in our lives anymore? Is it possible that, that one of the reasons why some of us have perhaps stalled out in our Christian growth stems from the fact that we have failed to recognize Christ for who he really is? Is it possible that we've reduced him, that we've lessened him in our lives, that we've made him to be a footnote that we just tack on to the end of our day when, when Christ should be the overarching theme that? that runs course throughout our day. Is it possible that in our spiritual lethargy, some of us have come to lack an appropriate awe and wonder of the Supreme Savior? Is it possible that this might be the missing piece in your life, a deep sense of awe and wonder that the sovereign Lord of the universe, by whom all things hold together, is also holding you, and he's also holding your life together. Perhaps if we allowed ourselves to be overwhelmed by the majesty of Christ, perhaps then our lives would never be the same. Perhaps if we we turned our eyes upon this supreme Savior to find all our fullness in his wonderful face, perhaps then all the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. For Christ is indeed supreme. He really is the supreme savior. That's what Paul is is pressing upon us here. He shows us that Christ is supreme. We see Christ's supremacy in his relation to the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, says Paul. Here we're shown Christ's supremacy over the cosmos. He is before all things, and, and in him all things hold together. Here we see Christ's supremacy in the church. He is the head of the body, says Paul. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And here we're shown Christ's supremacy even at the cross. For in him, says Paul, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, by the blood of his cross. Before the Apostle Paul even gets to Christ's supremacy over the cosmos, he first highlights Christ's supremacy by telling us who Christ is in relation to the Father. Christ, we read, is the image of the invisible God. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And this you may know is precisely what Christ himself taught throughout his earthly ministry. This is what, what Christ said to his disciples in his farewell discourse. There you may know that the disciples were gathered together in that upper room and, and Jesus had just told them "Where I'm going, you cannot come. But he said, where I go, I go to prepare a place for you and I am the way to that place. I am the way to the Father, Christ said. But how did Philip Respond to that saying of our Savior. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And how did Jesus respond? He said, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. And the point that each of these passages underscores for us is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father is perfectly revealed you see boys and girls just as earthly sons bear the semblance of their earthly father so too the heavenly son is the perfect resemblance of the heavenly father and so boys and girls if you want to know what the father is really like you need only look to his son for christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. As we read in John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God, but Christ has made him known. And so if you want to know God, and if you want to know what God is really like, if you want to know what his will is for your life, you need only look to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this truth we must recognize lies at the very heart of the Gospels because sometimes people can can get things all twisted around in their minds so so that Jesus is perceived as being the one who's out to save us, whereas the Father is out to get us. But that's not the case. That isn't so. It's not the case that that the Son is, is up in heaven having to, having to twist the Father's arm into loving you. But as John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he sent his only Son into the world, or as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, God did not send Christ into the world in order to love us, but God sent Christ into the world because he loved us. Paul says he did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so when Paul tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God, he would have us to see that the son is the perfect expression. He is the perfect embodiment of the law that the father had for you from before the foundation of the world. We do not look to anything or to anybody else. Jesus from all eternity is the perfect image, the perfect representation of the Father. Whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Christ has made the Father known. And being that this is so, Paul goes on to tell us that this Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And this expression we must understand is not a temporal expression which would suggest that, that there was once a time when, when Christ was not, but rather the word firstborn is a title. Just as the, the firstborn son in the ancient world had claimed everything belonging to his earthly father, so too Christ has claim. He has claim on everything that belongs to the heavenly father. He is preeminent. He is sovereign and supreme over all. As the psalmist says in Psalm 89, verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The word firstborn is a title of sovereignty. It's a title of supremacy. As we heard in our call to worship in the Lee's last days, God has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world as we'll sing from Psalm 22 as our doxology, for his the kingdom, his the right. He rules the nations by his might. Christ rules over the nations by right. It's his right. It's his claim. He possesses the place of prominence and preeminence. His is the name that is above every other name. He he is The image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Everything in heaven, the whole angelic host, that's what Paul is speaking of when he talks about the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. Everything in heaven And everything on earth was created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ reigns supreme over the cosmos. To quote the great theologian Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch over the whole domain of our human existence over over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, "Mine." Christ reigns supreme over the cosmos. And so whatever fullness or, or quality of life the Colossians are being led to think they were missing out on, Paul says it is not so. You only need Christ. Christ is supreme. Christ is your source of spiritual fullness. In Christ you have your depth and your, and your quality of life. He is the image of the invisible God, and Christ is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He was there in the very beginning as the agent of creation. He himself was the Word through which God created the world. Everything owes its origin to Him. Moreover, says Paul, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together which is to say that Christ is not only creator, but he is also sustainer. Jesus exercises supreme authority over the entire universe. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to him. Christ is in charge. Christ rules supreme. We need to believe that this morning. Day Nortland reflects on this very thing when he says the world's sidelining of his authority does nothing to reflect the reality of his authority, because from heaven's perspective, everything is going according to plan. Jesus Christ is overseeing everything that happens, both in the church and in world history at large, and so although our perception and ability to see the rule, his rule may wax and wane, that's perception only. His actual rule holds steady and supreme, strong, exhaustive, and all-seeing. No drug deal goes down apart from his awareness. No political scandal unravels beyond the reach of his vision. No injustice can be enacted behind his back, for Christ is holding all things together in the palm of his hand. As Hebrews 1 says, Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power, And what a comforting reality this is for us. For this supreme reign holds true not only for the cosmos and not only for world history generally, but also for you and me personally. The very same Christ who who holds the universe in the palm of his hand and the very same Christ who holds all things together in the palm of his hand is also holding you. And your life together. The very same Christ who holds the universe together, who holds the, the waters of the ocean together from from flooding the land is the very same Christ who holds your marriage together and your family together. Christ has the whole world in his hand that includes you and your children and your grandchildren. Both born and not yet born. In your smallness, writes Ortland, he notices you. In your sinfulness, he draws near to you, and in your anguish, he is in solidarity with you. We may not see Jesus with our eyes, but he is the most real thing in the universe. Subtract Christ from the universe, and everything falls apart. Subtract Christ from the universe, remove his. His sustaining and holding hand and everything unravels and disintegrates back into being without form and void. And so when Paul says that in him all things hold together, Paul means just that, all things. All things, including your little life as well, he sees you. The Supreme Savior knows you, and nothing is hidden from his sight. No trial or tribulation has come your way absent his presence in providence. No cancer scare, no loss of a job or income, no sudden unexpected death, no tragic accident. None of these things come the believer's way absent the reality that Christ, who is supreme over the cosmos, is right there with the believer and working all things together for his or her good. Nothing in this world happens at random or by chance. Not the roll of the dice, not the apple that falls from the tree. Every encounter you had last week, and every encounter that you'll have in the week to come, is by his sovereign design, is by his providential arrangement. It's amazing. It is. It is more than we can begin to fully grasp or comprehend. But it's true. It's reality. It's wonderful. This congregation is what the apostle wants us to see this morning. The very same Christ who reigns supreme over the cosmos reigns supreme over your life as well. This transcendent, the ever transcendent, beyond us, outside of us, God of glory, is at the very same time the ever near us, the imminent God of grace. And this is what we discover, especially in verses 18 and following, because in verses 18 and following, Paul brings the, the supremacy of Christ down to earth, as it were. He, he applies the supremacy of Christ specifically to this Little church in Colossae, he applies the supremacy of Christ to our church here in Wellenport. And he says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Taken Together writes William Hendrickson, Christ's supremacy over the cosmos and his supremacy in the church paints the picture of a Christ who holds in his mighty hand and embraces with his loving heart both the realm of creation and that of redemption. He is both creator and redeemer. He's the God of Isaiah 43, where God said to fearful Israel, Fear not, for I have created you, O Jacob, And I have redeemed you, O Israel, and you are mine. He is the King of the universe, and He is the head of the Church. He who is the firstborn of all creation is also the firstborn from the dead, the very same Christ, who has counted the stars, who knows them all by name, also knows your name. He is the head of the body, and we are his members. Through his resurrection, Christ became the firstborn from the dead, the, the first fruits of that great resurrection harvest, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. By his Spirit, we already have been raised to newness of life. And not only that, but we, but we share in the power of his resurrection such that, that we too will be raised with him on the last day as the second fruits of that great resurrection harvest. And so it naturally follows, doesn't it, that the very same Christ who is supreme over the universe must be supreme in the church as well. Abraham Kuyper's famous maxim about every square inch is not only written over the cosmos in in a general way, but it's also written over this church in a a specific way. It's also written over, over your life in a particular way. There's not a square inch over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That encompasses the world, that encompasses the church, that encompasses your life as well. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that in everything he might be supreme. Christ must be preeminent. He must be supreme in well-important URC. He must be preeminent. He must be supreme in your life. All that you have and all that you are must be devoted to him and to all that he is. Just as the heavens and the earth, the things visible and the things invisible were created by him and for him, so too you were created by him and for him. To quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this is your chief end in life, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. To quote our own catechism, God made man good and in his own image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. This is what you and I were put on this earth to do. This is what man was made to do. And this is what the redeemed have been remade to do. God caused us to be born again by the Spirit in order that the supremacy of Christ might be shown to the world in everything we do and everything we say. Those who are outside of Christ live in this world with a lack of purpose, they don't know why they're here. They don't know it is the, the chief end of man. And there's a great hopelessness to that, a great sense of vanity, that all is vanity and meaningless. But God has revealed to us our purpose. He's set before us what it is that you were made to do, what you're here on the earth for, to glorify him. Is Christ preeminent in your life? Is this our witness to the world? Does the world see by our words, by our attitudes and by our actions that Christ is our head? You see, by referring to Christ as the head of the body, Paul is saying that the church's dependence must rest upon him and the church's direction must come from him. Without a head, a body is lifeless, and so it is without Christ. Without Christ, the church becomes nothing more than a lifeless institution that has nothing better to offer the world than what the world has to offer. Too often, writes one pastor, the church looks to other things to inject life and vitality into it. The church looks to a social gospel. The church looks to social projects and social programs to inject life and vitality. Too often the church looks to other things to inject life and vitality into it when what it really needs is to appreciate its need for meaningful communion with Christ. Life and vitality have their source in Christ alone. He is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, outside of him, we can do nothing, he said. Do we believe that this morning, that apart from him, outside of him, we can do nothing? Are we seeking our life and our vitality in Christ alone? When you examine your life, when you... Examine your desires and your aspirations and your goals and your ambitions. Are you depending upon Christ? Are you seeking direction from Christ? Does Christ have preeminence? Is He supreme over your life? Is Christ sitting upon the throne of your heart? Is the supremacy of Christ manifest in your marriage? Do you, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Do you, wives, love and submit to your own husbands as the church loves and submits herself to Christ? Is the supremacy of Christ evident in your home life? Would your children say that Christ is supreme and that the word of Christ has a prominent place in your home, not just at the dinner table or before bedtime? But as you walk by the way, as you lie down, and when you rise, as Deuteronomy 6 sets before us, is the supremacy of Christ evident in your work life, in your studies, and your hobbies? Does Christ have preeminence? Is he supreme in your life? The question that Paul sets before us when he presents us with the supremacy of Christ, is how, is how can Christ not? How can he not have preeminence in your life? How can he not have supremacy in your life when he is the sovereign ruler and reconciler of the universe? For in him, says Paul, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As Paul does throughout this letter here too, Paul brings the idea of fullness into focus. In Christ, he says, all the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell. And so, as Article 26 of the Belgian Confession says, we need not look for another, we need not seek without ever finding. but Christ is sufficient to be our all and our everything. And that's what he must be. He doesn't need to be supplemented by anything or by anybody else. He is the all-sufficient Savior in whom the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell. Whatever earthly joy or pleasure it is you think that you're missing out on, Whatever earthly joy or pleasure you think you're lacking, or you think you need to be fulfilled, Paul says, you only need Christ. You don't need to supplement him, you don't need to add to him. You just need him. In him, all the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell. You just need him. Communion with him. Press the home even further. Paul brings us to the cross. He does so to highlight the wonder of all wonders that the Supreme Lord of the universe is not only able to give us all things and to give us spiritual fulfillment, but, but he is also willing. That's what we discover at the cross, the exceeding willingness of the Son to grant you everything you need, to grant you all spiritual fullness and joy. As Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 2, although Christ, the supreme Savior, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, even at the cross. Christ was reigning supreme. The cross was Christ's enthronement Even there, he was ruling over the universe and accomplishing the Father's will to bring about the restoration of the world. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, congregation at the the cross reveals to us the reality that Jesus Christ, the supreme sovereign of the universe and the head of the church is both lion and lamb. The cross reveals the wonder that Jesus is both king and friend. He is not only great, but he is also good, exceedingly good, even to sinners. And so over against the false teachings, pausing that Christ was not sufficient, Paul says, Christ is all-sufficient. He's all-sufficient. For Christ has not only reconciled the church to himself, but he is reconciling all things on earth and in heaven to himself. And while this certainly doesn't mean that every man and every demon will be saved in the end, what it does mean is that the scope of Christ's reconciliation transcends the mere saving of souls. But it involves the restoration of the cosmos the, and the whole created order. This whole creation, which now groans like a mother in labor itself, is also subject to the restorative power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what Paul is underlining here is that the cosmic sweep of God's reconciling work, he's going to apply that more specifically to us in the next verse. We'll hear that this afternoon. But here, Paul is underlining the cosmic sweep of Christ's reconciling work. When man fell into sin, the curse of sin invaded every aspect of the world. As William Hendrickson says, sin ruined the universe, destroyed the harmony between one creature and another, between all creatures and their God. When man fell into sin, thorns and thistles were introduced. Tension between husband and wife, between brother and sister. Pain and childbearing, and the creation groaned. The creation still groans. Sin ruined the universe and disrupted the harmony between creature and creature, between every creature and God. But here we learn in verse 20 that the grace of Christ extends as far as the curse is found. Through the blood of the cross, sin in principle has already been conquered once and for all. And a day is coming when the world will be rid of sin and the impact of sin once and for all. A day is coming when perfect harmony will finally be fully restored. This is what the prophet Isaiah foretold and longed for when he spoke of the, of the wolf lying down with the lamb and, and the leopard with the young goat and the lion with the fattened calf as a young child leads them. He foretold that a day was coming when perfect harmony would be restored. And this is what the Apostle Paul says, the Lord Jesus is now bringing to pass. He's bringing about the restoration of all things. As we read in Revelation 21, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new, he says. And behold, I am coming soon. This is the day that the Apostle Paul would, would set before us this morning. This is the day that we too must love and long for, the day. And Christ will make all things new. But until that day comes, may God grant us the grace to behold Christ in his supreme grace and glory, so that in all things he might be preeminent. Until he comes, may this supreme Savior be our all and our everything. For in him all the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And for the time you've given us this morning to meditate upon the majesty of Christ, the supreme and sovereign ruler of the universe, And Father, we pray that we would take heart in his sovereignty, that we would take all comfort in the knowledge of the same Christ who is holding the universe together, is also holding our lives together. Father, we pray that we would live in light of the reality that Christ is the head of the church. May we depend upon him and may we seek our direction from him. And Father, may we praise him as the one in whom peace has finally been purchased through the blood of his cross. Father, may we hear of that this afternoon, the peace that he has brought for us, that we might be stable and steadfast in him. These things we pray in Christ's name and for his sake, amen.